welcome to this edition of On the Mic with Mike. Uh, first off, a wonderful reception we've been having from everybody. I love all the feedback you've been giving us. Uh, we're looking forward to getting out to many different places across Canada to have these conversations. It's important for us to hear from you, so thank you very much to do that. Today we've got a real treat for you. Okay, we're going to be uh, having a discussion around First Nations issues, uh, and particularly as they relate to health research. And uh, John DeWer is going to be joining us. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, we're going to be heading up to uh, the offices uh, to have a cup of coffee and have a conversation around this. And we're going to explore uh, what it means for us to be really dealing with truth and reconciliation uh, as we move into the research realm and such. So listen, join me, come on in, and we're going to have a cup of coffee and a conversation. Welcome to the First Nations Information Governance Center today with Dr. Jonathan Dewar. Uh, John, we're going to be talking in just a minute, but first I do want to say thank you uh, for allowing us to be on this traditional lands, whether the Anishinaabe. All right, I think it's a real honor, so, and joining us today, we're looking forward to this. Uh, as, you know, as we've said in some of these videos, this is really about kind of understanding how did you get to where you are? Um, your career has taken an amazing path uh, when I have a look at it, right? And I'd, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about that sure. and then how you see how we're going to move things forward. Sure. So maybe let's just start with you introducing yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your pathway because it's fascinating. <laughs> sure. Um, so my name is Jonathan Dewar and I'm the Executive Director here at the First Nations Information Governance Centre. Uh, the most recent job and what I think is a, uh, an interesting career trajectory mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, so I've been here for about 18 months and um, it's exciting work. I think we're going to loop back to some of the work that I do here with an amazing network of people across the country uh, who really do all the real work. Uh, I'm, right, right. You know, I, I sign I sign papers. Okay. Uh, you may be familiar with that kind of role. Very much so, yeah. Um, so how did I get here? Um, well, I mean, people who have heard me uh, talk about my work um, or have read some of my work, because the story that I tell really is central to the work that I've done because positionality or that, uh, you know, that uh, subject positioning um, for me as a researcher is really important. Um, and so most of my positioning starts with a very personal story of, uh, how I came to be interested in First Nations issues in particular, but Indigenous issues uh, broadly as well in this country and internationally. So I grew up, uh, you know, you know, knowing that my maternal grandmother uh, was uh, connected to a First Nations community uh, through her father, my great grandfather. Uh, that's the community of Wendage in Quebec, the Huron Wendat Nation. Um, but my grandmother uh, and her siblings, you know, were a product of their time, and so the connection to culture and community had been severed um, right. in their lifetime. And so my mother and, and her sisters didn't grow up with that connection to culture and community. And so I think you'll find that that's very typical um, of a lot of people like me, uh, of mixed heritage. Um, you know, they have found their way to these issues um, in a very personal way. And, and some people have very heartbreaking stories of why that connection to culture and community uh, has been severed residential schools, uh, the 60s scoop, um, um, you know, uh, dispossession, displacement, enfranchisement, you know, all of these, all of these issues. Um, and so parts of those uh, are my story as well, and my family's story as well. But I was lucky uh, in my generation that I grew up um, with my family openly talking about my great-grandfather and how proud we were of him. Um, yes, the stories always started with, you know, he grew up on the res and he left the res and then became successful. But by the time uh, I came around, and I'm the youngest of all my cousins, my family talked quite proudly about what he'd accomplished. And so um, he uh, came to work for 
Louis Saint Laurent, uh, the future really? prime minister. Yeah. He was his driver uh, when he was a lawyer. He later became his personal uh, messenger. So back uh, before email, well before email, uh, he delivered uh, he delivered messages uh, for uh, Mr. Saint Laurent. And then when uh, Louis Saint Laurent became prime minister, he went to the hill with him, and he was known as the Indian on the hill. So, so how long ago would that have been? Right? Oh, so my great um, he, my great grandfather retired from that position in 1955, 56 at 70 okay. years old. Okay. So that's quite a while ago. But uh, he would have been there then during that time period when a lot of the health policy and such was being formulated and enacted. Yeah, no, I won't make a claim that my grand my great grandfather was actively involved in decision making. No, understood. But he would have been there during that time. He may have uh, yeah. may have been at some of those meetings or outside some of those meetings. Yeah. Um, but because he had that role, my family talked very proudly about him. So unlike a lot of families that uh, um, where. Uh, the, there was a certain degree of shame uh, about the disconnection from culture and community or not knowing how to connect. Uh, I was lucky that in my family we were proud of that connection. Mm. Now what it meant was nobody really knew anything. Um, and uh, I became interested as a child, naively, and you know, did all the stereotypical things that young people do when they want to connect to something. Whether you are Italian Canadian or Scottish Canadian or French Canadian right. or in this case you know, connected uh, to a First Nations in Canada. Um, you have some romantic ideals and you explore those things, which became threads in some of the work that I did do. Um, but uh, I, I explored it through uh, popular culture uh, and later the arts, and in particular literature. And so my academic career was, it started out, I was a literature scholar um, and did a master's degree in creative writing. And I focused my reading interests and my writing interests on explorations of culture and community. And again, you know, early on, 25 years ago, I did it, I think, naively. And I came to know many people who helped me along the way. Uh, I made many wonderful discoveries, figured out uh, you know, appropriate ways to enter into the discourse and be part of a community meaningfully. And then some of those things that I learned did drive me to say, I don't think this is the right path. This academic path that I'm on, I don't mm -hmm. think serves my interest, which includes now an interest in serving uh, community, right. being accountable to community. So, when, so, how far does that actually go back then in your thinking, right? So, a lot of individuals we talk to, uh, this is something that, you know, I, I wasn't even 10 or 11 or 12 yet, and I was beginning to realize this was an area of interest for yeah. me. Uh, um, literature and the arts is almost like a, a fine wine, it's an acquired taste, right? right to, but it sounds like you had an interest really early on in this. How did that come about? Um, well, I mean, you can turn to uh, literature and art more broadly um, is a way in. And because I was, uh, I love to write, and because I love to read as a young person, I'm very fortunate to have parents uh, have parents who were very supportive of that. Um, that was the way in. But still, that naive entrance into this idea of, oh, I have learned something through this creative work. I think creative works are an avenue for me to explore connection. Right. to explore how uh, artists are using their art to explore that same theme, and then how audiences are drawn to those works, perhaps on similar, on similar journeys. So for me, I was in my mid to late teens when I sort of made that okay. connection. Okay. Um, and uh, I actually went off, uh, I did my freshman year at Dartmouth College in, uh, in New Hampshire, and uh, um, I was enamored with the idea that that was an institution that had originally been built for the education of American Indians. Uh, I had intended to be there in part as a Native Studies scholar. 
Um, I ended up, circumstances, financial largely, mm. brought me back to Canada. I finished my undergraduate degree in literature here, um, making a conscious effort to try to work indigenous or native literature, as we called it back in the early 1990s, native literature into what I was doing. And I did not find um, many avenues for that at the University of Ottawa. What I found was, when I went out into the world uh, to conferences and those sorts of things, um, or, or book-oriented events, I started to meet this incredibly lively, incredibly thoughtful community of native and non-native, or indigenous right. and non-indigenous scholars working on, working to advance native literature, and that's where I felt like, okay, this, right. is, this is a connection that I can follow, and I can learn from people. So, so my, my impression, right, and, and really that's all it is, uh, in, in talking to my colleagues and some of my First Nations colleagues and friends, mm -hmm. but that's a much richer culture now than it would have been 30 years ago, say. Uh, but is the journey any less difficult for a young person now wanting to follow, particularly in the arts, right, arts, literature, expression, video, whatever it might be in that, is it any less difficult now than it would have been in your day? Um, so there... There's a very there's a there's part of that question I can't answer. I can't I couldn't tell you. First of all, I'm not young anymore. Um, but I can imagine that there are many there are ways that it is easier for young people today right. because there are more avenues. Just look at our Canadian institutions, post-secondary institutions, uh, Native studies, Indigenous studies, Aboriginal studies. Um, you know they have proliferated over the years. So you can, unlike my experience as an undergraduate where uh, I, I couldn't find any courses or couldn't find the content right. in a more mainstream literature program. Um, I think the opportunities are much more uh, available now. Now, so it may be easier in some, in some ways, but I would never say that uh, someone's personal journey to discovering how right. they're connected to community is easier. We now have social media. We didn't right. have that when I was young. And so now a lot of these conversations and the very critical... Uh, perspectives that need to be part of these conversations can happen in an instant on social media. And that can be difficult, I think, for young people. And I know there are some cases where people have been you know, openly criticized, um, and perhaps rightly so. And it is a part of being uh, a member of a community, whether a discrete indigenous community or some larger community of interest. Um, you have to be open to that criticism. And so, there's, so you're raising a really interesting point there, which you've done a couple of times now, right? Community. Right? And I think of, certainly for myself, my colleagues who are not Indigenous and not First Nations, community is a thing, a concept we struggle with mm -hmm. to really understand for it. So when you're talking about community, whether it be small local community, family community, larger First Nations, Indigenous community, or world community, what are you meaning? Well, so this is, this is a part of, you'll, you'll see a lot of people like me, when we do our positionality thing, right. we necessarily use very specific language about how we talk about connection. So... I am very proud to say that I'm connected to my grandmother. There's no disputing that. And her connection to a community is real. Right. But her connection to that community is not my connection to the community. So I would never make a claim to be a member of that community or a citizen of the right. nation because I am you know, two generations solidly removed from that connection. So um, do you use the language of diaspora? Do you use the language of... Uh, right. of mixed identity as opposed to a First Nations identity. I think these are things people have to think through right. and be part of the way they critically position themselves. So for me, I'm comfortable saying I'm a person of mixed heritage, uh, a First Nations heritage, a specific First Nations heritage is right. part of that, but I'm very clear what it means to be connected to community. So 
when indigenous folks meet, they ask, hey, where are you from? Um, and the, especially for First Nations folks, they're looking to know which community or communities okay. um, people are um, very tangibly connected to. So it's a geographic? Well, it's, uh, it, you are from a nation. You are from a community okay. under that nation context. Okay. You're this community as opposed to that community. Um, but people are also looking to know, um, are you connected as a member? Are you connected as a citizen? Um, and uh, um, you know, what that means for the conversation can be, can be different. For researchers, it's very important. Right. Because um, if you are from a discrete community, discrete identifiable community, and you choose to work with your own community, the relationship is very, very different. I think it can be extremely rich, but also fraught with challenges. But if you're not from that community, even if you are First Nations, you're not from there. Okay. It's different, and you need to position yourself differently, and you need to think differently, and you need to think where the accountabilities and the authorities are. Right. So, if you're, so, so if you're a young person right now, right, thinking about, um, this is really awesome, right? I can have an opportunity uh, to have a, to become an Indigenous scholar. Large, right? All that. I don't have to lose my sense of community to do that. Is that what you're telling I me? I hope not. Yeah. I think we've come a long way. Um, I think I think young people, young and old people, right. because there are people there. There are people on journeys late in life. Um, right. I, we're, uh, you know, national news in the last several months has been uh, the '60s scoop issue. So those people who were adopted out and are quite late in life in some cases, some friends of mine. Uh, making those connections. So they're on journeys okay. that I have found myself on, uh, a much, you know, much more profound journey than I found myself on, but they're on those journeys perhaps in their 40s, 50s, okay. 60s. Um, so young people, yes, um, but it's not, all, it's not exclusively young people. But they're on, they're on journeys to figure out what it means to connect, and it can be right. extremely challenging. Um, and I think we have to give people a lot of space for that. Um, but accountability ultimately has to be there at the end of the day. So you've now had a second phase of your journey, right? So you've had all your training under your belt um, for that. Um, but now you've had a really fascinating journey. I mean, you've, you've really not sat in one spot um, and really built this massive dossier of experience, uh, integrated your arts uh, experience into that and, and now have an opportunity to change the landscape. Mm -hmm. What's that like for you and how did you get there? Well, it took a while. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, you know, doing a literature degree, then choosing to do a, uh, a creative writing master's degree where I was able to bring in issues of, uh, from my own personal exploration, issues of what it means to use the arts to explore connection. Um, I took that work into a PhD in Indigenous literatures um, and uh, took it quite far, comprehensive exams, well into the writing. And I just realized, you know, it, though I found a wonderful community of artists and scholars right. and they were very supportive of me, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. I didn't see myself as a literature professor okay. as the immediate next step. Um, my wife and I had the opportunity to move up to Akaluit, uh, Nunavut. Okay. Uh, and so we did, uh, and I got involved with uh, local theater there. Uh, also, my wife and I decided to start a family, so, you know, got a government job. Uh, I worked for the Office of the Languages Commissioner in Nunavut uh, uh, under the future uh, uh, Premier Eva Ariak, who was an incredible, inspiring uh, woman to work for, and I learned uh, an incredible amount from. Then a job, uh, you know, at the federal government opened up, and I moved on there. Uh, then a job here in Ottawa at the National Aboriginal Health Organization opened up. 
Um, I became the director of the Métis Center, which was interesting. Person of mixed heritage, mm. not Métis. Right. Um, it was interesting to, to be able to go and work from Inuit issues to then working on Métis issues, and specifically Métis health issues. And I think the bridge into that work was I talked to them, as I am talking to you mm-hmm. here, about my interests in the arts and how exploring connection to culture and community for me was about, I didn't necessarily use the language of healing at the time, but certainly health and well-being. Right, okay. And here I was at a health or, national health organization that uh, helped lead the inquiry into what does it mean for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis to be engaged in health and well-being. And that's really where the fire was lit. I right. knew that I wanted to pick up the academic work that I had begun to leave, um, but also make a contribution in this large organization context where there is, a, there is an accountability built in. So you have an organization that is governed in a particular way, mm-hmm. and if it's governed well, then the lines of accountability back to community, in the case of that organization, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, can be very strong. And so I felt, I, I just felt that yes, this is this is a contribution I can make. I think some of my gifts, uh, elders mm-hmm. have told me, uh, you know, we're in helping people collaborate. Right. And so leadership roles, um, this was the the first significant one. Leadership roles, I think, became part of what I aspired to be uh, a, a part of as well. Yeah, I still wanted to keep the arts stuff up, right. and I was struggling with how do you do that. Right. Um, and then the next big opportunity presented itself, which was. A woman I had long look, uh, looked up to uh, passed away, Gail Vallis-Caucus, and she was the uh, original uh, director of research at the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. Okay. So she passed away, and I found myself in a conversation with the uh, executive director, um, and uh, he invited me to take that role. And I was, it actually took me several minutes after he broached it in right. conversation to realize that He'd said that. Right. Um, and it was an incredible opportunity, but it was very daunting as well. Um, ultimately, I did decide to accept the offer. Uh, and so very humbly, I went in to continue the work that Gail had started at the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, helping to lead the research and evaluation efforts for this unique organization that was created coming out of RCAP. So one of the few RCAP recommendations. What's RCAP? So the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, um, which was struck in uh, 1991, concluded in 1996, that report had 440 recommendations. They were called recommendations in that report. Uh, Only a small handful have been acted upon. The residential schools part of uh, those recommendations, I think we can say were meaningfully and not insignificantly acted upon by the government of the day. In 1998, there was a statement of reconciliation, um, uh, a policy document called Gathering Strength. Within that, uh, there was a a fund that saw the creation of the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. Its mandate was to fund community-based initiatives that uh, responded to the legacy of physical and sexual abuse in residential schools. And to support the funding of those programs, there was also a research component. So researching what healing meant, researching uh, other foundational issues around that, and then doing the other research that um, needed to be done to support what communities were doing. Evaluation was a big part of it. And so I got to do that for five years. Oh, okay. And Did you do research into that area as well? or just Absolutely. Your... absolutely. Wow, okay. I mean, the, the, yep. the, the, the principal job was managing the existing research projects. Right. And then because the landscape changed in 2007, with the uh, implementation of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, Mm -hmm. which saw an extension of the Healing Foundation's mandate for an additional five years, 
it created an opportunity for us to do new research as well. So because the landscape had changed and introduced into that landscape were uh, elements of compensation for survivors, we knew one of the key questions that had to be asked was, if people have been engaged in healing for a few years or a few decades, right. and you introduce something as significant as compensation, where you are required to tell your story, perhaps multiple times, mm -hmm. in order to get the compensation, what does that do to people right, on healing right. journeys? So how do you do it? So it's a, it's a fascinating area that you're starting to delve into, right? And it's, you know, traditionally, so, you know, within the CIHR, we talk about excellence in research, right? an important phraseology for that. But it has a confined phraseology. It talks about my experience, my, right, uh, with regards to what we expect of investigators. That is not the same thing, right, as talking about uh, when we're talking about healing, when we're talking about lived experience, when we're talking about communities right. and their experience right. in there. And the question that I do get a lot from young people who are thinking about this and coming from an indigenous background and saying, uh, I want to do this research, or I'm already involved in it, or as what do you mean by research? Yeah. Right? Um, is it narrative? Is it qualitative? Um, how do you collect the, the, the vision, the history, the elders? Right? Everything that, all that knowledge has passed and has had an impact. So how do you do that um, as you're going forward? It's, it's, it's a different world. Yeah. So mixed methods um, yeah. is absolutely the, the way to do it. So we had a very, uh, we had a very focused uh, quantitative approach to research especially on the evaluation side of the work that we did, it was by necessity in some cases quantitative. We were counting uh, the numbers of people, or rather we were helping projects uh, count the number of people who were participated, who had uh, indicated success in this or that. Um, but we also did a lot of qualitative research. And so those mixed methods approaches, I think, are, are absolutely essential. Now I'm an arts, humanities, social sciences right. guy, um, uh, uh, but I love to work with data scientists, and I love to work right. with statisticians. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll come back to this, but that's uh, much closer to the work that I'm doing here at the First Nations Information right. Governance Center. But I'll tell you, there is a thread of the arts through all of this stuff, because, I mean, First Nations uh, folks in particular look at, um, you know, look at well-being from the perspective of being in balance. And so the different parts of you, and whether that's for um, you know, the circle with the four quadrants right. that many people would be familiar with. Whether it's uh, four parts or more than four, like what, whatever, whatever the permutation is of that vision, the idea is to be in balance. And we certainly learned at the Aboriginal Healing Foundation in some research I'll tell you about in a second, um, that the arts are a central part of right. being whole as an individual, as a community, as a nation, as a people. So one of the things that we found at the Healing Foundation, uh, one of the first things I discovered when I started the job there in 2007 as I was pouring through all of the quarter, quarterly reporting that projects had done was uh, they mentioned the arts everywhere. And so I looked at, the, uh, I looked at the, um, the reporting templates that we used where we required people to report on specific things. We didn't ask arts-based questions. So I looked at the funding documents. We didn't, we didn't create opportunities for people to uh, to there wasn't an arts stream in the funding approach. Right. So, you know, sort of like, well, Eureka. I mean, I think we've hit on something that we already knew, but I'm seeing it in this Aboriginal Healing right. Foundation context. So I pitched to uh, my boss, Mike Degagne at the time, and later the board, this idea that we should really study this. I think this is a significant finding. And so sure enough, when we uh, did a largely uh, qualitative uh, study mm -hmm. to interview uh, the, uh, a, a large number of projects that we were uh, working with and funding, um, we asked them, why? Why are the arts 
so prominent in what you do. Mm -hmm. And we heard that message that it's what we've always done. The arts, right. you know, uh, the arts from our distinct worldview perspective, not necessarily, you know, Les Beaux-Arts from, you know, a Western perspective, but the arts have always been part of our culture, our community, our language, um, you know, part of our families, part of how generations interact with each other. And so whether you're thinking about singing, drumming, dancing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, beadwork, um, you know, pictographs, all of that stuff is absolutely, it was absolutely integral to the life's blood of a community, the life's blood of identity in, in, in a nation context. Um, and, uh, you know, when European people came mm. here, uh, new elements were introduced. And so there, was, there has been a thread of incredible art making from time immemorial here in these lands that we call Canada. And it's always been connected to health and well-being. And now we know that, when, so the, the main finding from that project was when given the opportunity, indigenous communities will overwhelmingly, 80-some percent, overwhelmingly choose to include the arts in their healing modalities. So that's fascinating. So when, you know, when, when we look at the, the mandate of the CIHR, right, it's, it's embedded within the CIHR Act. Mm -hmm. Opening paragraph. You know, our primary responsibility is to change the health of Canadians yeah. through research. Mm -hmm. I can phrase it a few different ways, but there's a couple of deliverables in there with that. Uh, and this concept of the arts, Right? We, we're starting to see it now in more non-traditional medicine as we would see it, and that's not to imply First Nations or Indigenous or otherwise for it, but to look at, you know, individuals had a stroke or a hemispheric lesion mm -hmm. of some sort, where we look at the arts as a way of sort of bringing them forward with that. And yet what I'm hearing and seeing is a much broader base of the arts, that this is actually integral to how we do look at the health of an individual. So I'm going to ask you a bit of a tough question here, but maybe not. So if, if we're going to look at a vision and say, listen, we have a responsibility for the health, not just of us, but our children's children mm -hmm. coming down the road, and the learnings that we would get uh, from our First Nations colleagues uh, is that that cannot be done in the absence of arts. It's such, a, it's such a key component of the quadrants that you've described for that. How do we get there? Right? over time. What do we do with our children coming forward right now to say, and, and that's my children, your children, right? Mm -hmm. How do we get them to say, it's, there is a part of healing and there's a part of health uh, that would not be founded in the science that you and I or I would sit down and write down, here's the, here's the paper for it, but this is actually so core. Where do we start and how do we bring that to the table? Uh, with lots of ways to approach that. I mean, creative thinking is creative thinking, whether you crunch numbers or you, um, you mix colors. Right. I mean, I think, I think there's something to it there. There's something uniquely, inherently human vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the connection with the arts. So that's one element for sure. Um, but one, one way to approach it is, I mean, my firm belief is whenever you say the word STEM, you know, STEM education, it needs okay. to be STEAM. Right? It needs to be. Ah, interesting. Okay. It needs, the Put an A, a in the middle of it. The A has to be in there. I think, right. I think uh, even our best scientists, our best engineers right. um, uh, deserve to flex that creative muscle. Um, and so I would love to see, uh, I'd love to see rounded people, uh, rounded approaches to, to education. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but there are also very scientific ways of looking at the arts. And so, again, to return to that Healing Foundation research that we did, three other major findings that we found were um, that in those projects that we looked at that included the arts, there was the finding that, you know, art making um, is therapeutic. Just, 
you know, children making art, uh, the stroke patient, right. you, know, uh, uh, you know, trying to draw something or working with clay or something like that. It's just therapeutic. We know that there is international literature from around the world that says art making is therapeutic. Then there's the arts in therapy. So creative arts as therapy okay. or arts therapy. So that's the, the Western, Western modality. Um, you know, uh, again, there's a huge international body of literature around that. And then there's the last finding that for indigenous people, I think it's safe to say around the world, holistic healing necessarily includes the arts. Okay. And that is something that I think the respondents to this study and many people I've spoken to would say, that's a finding, for, that's a finding that comes from time immemorial. Right? That's something they've always known. It's something that will always be there. So there are a lot of ways to look at that question. But I do think um, that the, the need to separate out art making from the sciences, uh, I think that's a bit of a fool's errand. Uh, you know, some of my favorite people are scientists. And they, they like to go to the movies. Yep. Uh, they like to laugh. And uh, you know, they like to, to marvel at beautiful things. Um, and uh, they like to talk critically about how those beautiful things came to be. Um, there, we're okay. at the same table having, okay. you know, meaningful intersecting conversations. Kind of following in along that, right, so prior to coming into this role, I was a dean of a faculty of medicine and dentistry. Mm -hmm. And when I first started into that, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission brought forward its calls to action. Um, and you know, we, as, as collectively as deans of medicine across the country, we, we definitely saw that there were very specific issues in there that spoke to us mm -hmm. about what we needed to do mm -hmm. um, in trying to move these things forward. Mm -hmm. It didn't speak to us in terms of what we've been talking about, this more holistic approach, the role of the arts, the, the role of the history of, of really medicine and healing as we go forward with this work. And so we really grappled with that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to flip a question to you, right? Uh, put yourself in, in the position of somebody who now has the opportunity to really think about how do we train the next generation of healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's indigenous providers, First Nations, you know, non-First Nations. All, how do we really start to bring these worlds together to recognize that there's, there really is a holistic approach to how do we do this? And how do we do the science, mm -hmm. kind of writ large, science as to really proving and making sure that we're doing the right things and moving forward. So put yourself in, our, in, in those shoes for a moment and think, with everything that you've learned in your experience, even bringing some more of it into it, how would you do that? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the, I talked about the landscape changing uh, right. in 2007 with the settlement agreement. Within the settlement agreement, one of the components was the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that was another one of those in, that introduced something into the landscape that for residential school survivors and those people affected intergenerationally really changed the landscape. But it also changed the landscape for Canadians. Yes, there was the work that the TRC did going across the country to bring survivors and Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities together at national and regional and local events. That was very important. Um, they also came out with an interim report, a final report, and with the final report, of course, the 94 calls to action. And they were calls to action, not recommendations. Yes. They learned that from, uh, the, from RCAP. Um, calls to action, not recommendations that can sit on a shelf. So the landscape did change. Um, and I think that the 94 calls to action contained some very practical um, calls uh, for different uh, sectors of Canadian society to act. Mm -hmm. So you've made reference to the ones 
about uh, you know ed educating people who work in the health field, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but the I mean the, the other thing that I think we we need to acknowledge is people can't start with the 94 calls to action. You actually need to start with the report. Because what Canadians need to do, and I didn't have the benefit of this when I was uh, uh, in elementary school or high school. I'm mm. guessing you didn't either. We weren't no. taught no. a full, true, rich, um, warts and all version of Canadian history. Right. We were told a sanitized version, a version that was um, from a particular perspective, and it left perspectives out. First Nations, Inuit, and Métis perspectives, mm -hmm. of course, are, are central to that. So if people are going to start with the TRC, hey, we, people have to start somewhere. Right. But people need to start with the report. Yeah. the report. Read the book first. Read the book right. that covers the history. Yeah. Then come with, a, with a, a greater understanding of the richness of those calls to action. So that when you then get, whether you're a lay person or whether you are someone like you in your mm -hmm. position running a Canadian institution looking to act on specific calls to action or the big principles that we might say mm -hmm. surround the calls to action, I think uh, you can be much more concrete. So where those calls to action are concrete, I think it behooves institutions, the people running those institutions, to follow where the TRC right. commissioners meant to lead you. So it's a bit of a roadmap. Yeah, you must do a better job ensuring that uh, the students who end up in undergraduate programs, professional programs, graduate programs, have a foundation in the true history of the peoples that they will be serving, broadly speaking. And whether they're going to be focused, whether their careers are going to focus on indigenous communities, as mine has, or indigenous people, maybe part of the communities that they work with and for, right. You need to know the history. You got to roll up your sleeves. You have to do the work. So it's very interesting that you raise it in that that fashion, right? And I think, you know, one of the true privileges I have in this job that I have right now is that it's an opportunity to expand that knowledge base mm -hmm. far beyond what I had before. So, um, yes, read through the original uh, documents, then looked at the the calls to action and tried to understand how they integrated. To be fair, it wasn't truly until I had a chance to meet elders to talk with them to talk with indigenous scholars, to go to the communities and try and get a sense for what does it mean for this to, to really on the ground, right? And I'm, I'm by no means what I say that I have a fluency in it right now because I do not, right. but I have a greater understanding that I never gleamed, even for the want of working at it to try and understand it. So is it enough? It's a great starting point. I agree with you entirely for that. But if those who are really invested in it and saying, yes, we must do this and we understand why, I would be the first to say that I really didn't appreciate why okay, until good. I had the opportunity to be there and, and listen to scholars and see. So is this something that we can do alone? Or is this something that we really have to be saying, this is a Canadian community, this is an ecosystem. We got here through some really bad decisions, got it, right? But we're here, and the only way we're going to get out of it right. is to do this as a unified and really understanding it. Is that a fair kind of view? Yes. Wouldn't it be great if that's how contact happened 500 years ago? Wow. Uh, yeah. we, I think we have the opportunity. Um, we have the opportunity to do what you're talking about. And I think uh, leadership, and so I refer to the federal government, right. but also First Nations leadership, Inuit leadership, Métis leadership, are talking about the need for... So this prime minister uses the language of nation-to-nation -nation relationships right. for First Nations, uh, government-to-government, Inuit-to-crown. Right. Um, I think that's great rhetoric, um, but it's a really good example of what I found 
in my research. So that when I finally went back to do a PhD right. that I would finish, uh, I did uh, uh, Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton University, and I was able to focus on uh, the role of art and artist in healing and reconciliation. Okay. In that work, the findings that came out of my work were uh, for reconciliation to be truly effective, you need to have symbolic action along with substantive and systemic action. So okay. if the, we were to say that there were principles overarching the TRC's calls to action, some of the things that they con concretely call for are symbolic. Changing names and building monuments, those are symbolic. Those things have to also be substantive and, where possible, systemic. So, uh, you know, moving away from that example, let's look at the institution that you run. Mm. Um, uh, there needs to be systemic change. Um, I think we've seen some, some efforts at substantive contributions to reconciliation, so dollars put forward to allow for research in um, indigenous or co-created, co-developed uh, priorities, I think that's wonderful. I think we can do better. Right. Um, but in terms of systemic change, these are buzzwords right now, mm -hmm. and hopefully there can still be meaningful work done, regardless of the fact that they've become buzzwords. But decolonizing institutions, I think, is that's a theme that we can embrace. And what is so? And I hear that word a lot. Mm -hmm. I think I understand it, which usually means I don't. Right. So, what do you mean? Um, well, the first thing I think that Canadians have to do, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians, is we have to acknowledge what it means to be beneficiaries of ongoing settler colonialism. Because that, I think, is the, is the for me, is the best way to, exp to explain um, how the, the kinds of privilege that many of us uh, occupy, whether we are Indigenous or non-Indigenous, um, but certainly somebody like me, many layers of privilege. Uh, one of those elements of privilege is I benefit from settler colonialism, so the systems that built this country and displaced peoples. Okay. I would argue that that is ongoing, and I think many of my indigenous colleagues would argue that that is ongoing. And I think it behooves us as a population to acknowledge that we are beneficiaries of that settler ongoing, okay. ongoing settler uh, colonialism. So that means the institutions that have been built here are built on settler colonialism. Okay. So what can we do to institution, institutions to strip away the negative elements of that influence? In a perfect world, we might say, let's start from scratch and let's build institutions from the ground up mm -hmm. that we don't have to decolonize or we don't have to indigenize, the other term that you've probably heard repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Decolonization is not just about indigenous peoples. I think colonial systems are not good for many people. I don't think they're good for women uh, or people uh, on the gender spectrum, you know, outside of those binaries. I don't think that they're, I don't think they're good for uh, people of color. I don't think they're good for new, uh, uh, new arrivals to this country. So I think it behooves all of us to do the work of decolonization. And I would argue that everyone can do that work. Right. Now, indigenization is different. Only knowledge holders can do indigenization. So you and I can't lead indigenization. Okay. We can uh, create the spaces where the rich conversation can happen. Right. And ultimately, I think indigenization doesn't mean anything until a community um, has defined what it means for that community. Now, so the CIHR community right. Right. could come together and say, we need to develop definitions for what it means for us to do right. decolonization. And if appropriate, if guided by the right people, in the right way, how we do indigenization. So that leads to a question. So are knowledge holders, by definition, elders? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, uh, we usually default, uh, default to that. Um, but this is where 
the indigenous 101 that most people have mm -hmm. uh, is simply not good enough because you need to go much deeper. Um, for this First Nation, yeah, that might be an appropriate context. For this First Nation, it might be a starting point to understand how knowledge holders okay. in that community are considered, but um, you know, uh, headmen, the people who are put forward to be in, uh, in headmen are women, the people who are put forward to, to lead from a political big P or small p political context, you know, may have a council of elders, may have a council of women, may have a council of youth, young people. Uh, advising them. So, and that would be the knowledge holders for that demographic or that might be the community. Yeah, the reason why this organization that I currently work for has this vision, yeah. so that we, we envision that First Nations will achieve data sovereignty in alignment with their distinct worldview, the reason we have that vision is for exactly the complexity that I'm talking about, is researchers who are going to have a, a relationship with First Nations communities need to understand that, yeah, sure, there are some commonalities. But ultimately, there are distinct worldviews. There are distinct First Nations here who are as diverse from each other as anyone else in Canada from whatever corner of the globe. Okay. Um, and so I think that's what people need to understand. And so um, if you're going to talk about who are the knowledge holders, you need to know what community, how many or how many communities you're talking about, because you know many communities can come together to, to form some larger community. Um, community can be defined in, in, in many ways. But the first thing you need to understand is the nomenclature can be very helpful. It can also be a hindrance. Right. So we've now native, aboriginal, indigenous. And these are collective nouns that in the Canadian context are meant to say First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. Well, why not use those terms? Right. And For where clarity. possible, why not right. refer to the nations, the Cree, the Mi'kmaq? Right. Um, I think if we, if people know to go to that level of uh, specificity, that level of detail, I think you, you honor, you honor everybody okay. in, so in that approach. So we're going to do a cycle back right now, right? Okay. Um, so I was recently in the north, um, in in an Inuit community, and saw a beautiful example of of the kinds of artwork that young people are doing mm -hmm. right now. Um, you wouldn't recognize it, certainly in my eye initially, as being this is uniquely indigenous um, or, or Inuit art. Or, but clearly it had become a mechanism by which uh, a group of very troubled youth were now using and learning the arts. They were learning welding mm -hmm. and metalwork and such. Mm -hmm. And it was so successful they were now, Wonderful. it's going to be start to expand it. And, and your response is exactly where I'm going with all of this. So we have a real issue of First Nations youth right now. Uh, and we don't need to go into all the, the illnesses and such, but they're devastating. Do you see the arts as being a necessary avenue to start that healing process? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in the case of, uh, of, of youth and their particular uh, issues or struggles, the arts can be an essential element. So can sport. Right. I mean, so can uh, education. So can uh, many things. But because you, because you asked about the arts, I'll tell you yeah. about the arts. So when, when I was up in, in Iqaluit, not long after I arrived in 2001, you know, some people approached me and said, hey, we hear you're a literature and uh, theater guy. Uh, we're interested in, uh, in developing community theater here. And uh, uh, we think we can get some money to do a feasibility study. Would you help us do that? So, yeah, wonderful. Right? This, this may be what I'm looking for, you know, as I'm struggling with the, what to do with a PhD in, in, in literature that I may be moving away from. This sounds very practical. I could get behind that. Well, the feasibility study showed that, yes, this community desperately needs the arts, okay. but it doesn't need Shakespeare in the park. Right. Although that can be a part of it. 
What it needs is youth need something to do. Youth need something that allows them to explore culture and community. And youth need an opportunity to work through the issues that they put on the table as the ones they want to work through. Mm -hmm. So that became the focus of the company that we started. And over several years, we did a lot of programming. And when we asked youth what they wanted to do, you know, we thought it was going to be drum dancing and right. throat singing. And we did do some of that, but it was often hip hop dancing. Ah, you know, okay. It was often rapping. So yeah, well outside of my comfort zone. But it was incredible to be able to do that. Yes, we put on a beautiful main stage production eventually that was an Inuit legend, Nuliayuk. And it was a fantastic experience. Um, but elsewhere in Nunavut, you saw uh, a circus troupe develop. You know, elsewhere in Nunavut, you saw um, the development of, well, you know, not connected, I'm not saying inspired by the work mm -hmm. we did, but elsewhere in Nunavut, filmmaking, cutting edge filmmaking. So I think um, there is the arts as therapeutic, youth have to be exposed to it. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say that what we were doing was in any way art therapy, but also the opportunity for the arts as an avenue for prof you know, learning professional right. skills. Right? Okay. Showing up on time is, a, is an important a life set. lesson That's right. for young people. And so you sign up to be in a play. You sign up. You are part of a, a team. You're part of a collaborative pr uh, process. And so there are all kinds of intersecting things that we can talk about here. But yeah, it's wonderful when you see this uh, right. take root in the community. Um, and people get behind it. And again, if you are successfully running something like that, something like what you described, somebody has invested in that. Right. Somebody has probably changed the systems to allow for the funding to flow better or... Right. And you know in that group? It was the teachers. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it really set that up. So let me ask, I'm going to ask you the question that I love to ask everybody. It's, uh, it used to be out of the left field, so if, if you watched any of the videos, you might have seen the left field okay. coming for you. If you had an opportunity right now to talk to anybody... Oh, boy. Yeah. Doesn't matter what era, what time, and you could sit down and have... Who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Great question. Uh, well, I'll look back to the start of the conversation. Okay. I never got to talk to my great-grandfather. Right. So I would start there. Right. Um, I long wondered if I would be able to... Um, if I would be able to do some creative work that would really sort of explore... Um, what his life was like and what it meant to right. leave a community, what it, meant, what it was like to end up on, on Parliament Hill. Right. Uh, I, uh, I'm more of a space creator than an art creator. Okay. Uh, I think that was a, a humbling experience. Um, but again, you, know, you, find out what you find out what your gifts are um, and you, you right. play to your strengths. Um, but yeah, if I had the opportunity to sit down and interview my great-grandfather, I would, uh, I would, lo I would love right. to do that. And, uh, you know, I would love if my grandmother could join me, and I would love it if my mom and her sisters could join me, my cousins. So you're uh, really talking about your community. Yeah, and, yeah. and his connection to that discreet yeah. nation, that discreet community, right. um, was his connection. Right. And uh, um, I would, yeah, I would love to, I would, I would love to know how he got to where he was, and, uh, and maybe there are regrets. Maybe not going back uh, was a hardship for him. Right. Um, I know he you know, lost touch with his brother. He didn't see his brother again after, I think they were in their late teens. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm told that was true of many people of that yeah. era. They left communities. Our, our Mohawk friends just south of here, many of them went uh, you know, and uh, the, 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 the worked on the high rises and building you know, North okay. America's greatest cities. And um, a lot of them didn't find their way back. And I think uh, that generation, I've heard the stories. 
uh, I'd love to hear it from him. Yeah. Jonathan, this has been fantastic. I want to thank you so much My pleasure. for sharing. We could go on for another hour or two. Maybe we will someday. Maybe we will. But uh, thanks for sharing all of that with you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care.